You're listening to the weekly message by St. Stephen's Episcopal Church. We are a church that strives to know, love, and serve God as we deepen our faith. We worship online via Zoom and at our House of Worship in Rochester, New York. To learn more, visit us at stephensrochester.org. Well, good morning, folks. Today, we're going to continue to unpack that rather cryptic passage from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi that Judy just read us. Uh, and I, I want to focus on uh, the a theme that arises from it. And as I shared with you last week, the background of that is Paul has some enemies. And today I want to explain to you a little bit about why he had enemies that were so persistent and why he needed to give an account of his faith and to say many of the things that uh, he, he alludes to in that letter to the church at Philippi by uh, understanding, well, what was the issue that they had with what he was teaching? So let's get into that. And uh, so last week we saw how Paul had been called by God, by Yahweh, while he was on the road to Damascus, uh, called to share the good news of what God was doing in the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And as a consequence of that and of, of subsequent encounters that Paul had with a risen Lord, uh, Paul had no embarrassment in declaring that something extraordinary, something mind-blowing had occurred. And so he boldly took, we, we, we remember from last week, the, the prayer that uh, the Jews knew as the Shema, meaning the word listen. And he inserted this prayer that the Jews said daily uh, he inserted Jesus into it, declaring Jesus as the Lord and invoking the Holy Spirit. We also saw that immediately after Paul was called, he set off to Damascus, to this area north of Galilee that we now call Jordan. Now, in Paul's time, that area was called Nabatea, and it was a pagan town that had a high density of Jews. Today, I'd like for you to imagine with me, how offensive Paul's gospel would have been to many of those Jews. It would have been less hard for pagans. Pagans could easily imagine God choosing to become a person without ceasing to be God, since the interaction between the gods and mortals was not an uncommon thing in, in the Greek and Roman pantheons. But for Jews who believed in a creator God who transcends creation, the very suggestion that a Galilean was the Messiah and was also God's son was offensive. So to recall what we learned last week, Paul was called by God to be an apostle in the year 34, and his home base was not Jerusalem, but Damascus. And from there, he went around preaching the gospel in the towns south of Damascus, such as the Decapolis and Nabatea. And today we have an update that we're going to unpack this morning. And that update is this. Within two years, so by the year 36, Paul had managed to anger Jews in Nabatea so much that they wanted him dead. They wanted him arrested. Now, Paul, of course, knew the implications of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah would anger many Jews because it had enraged him. To avoid their angry reactions to his preaching, he would flee when it was necessary. And so he'd rush back to Damascus, where the people from the other cities had no authority to arrest him. 
But then over the course of the next couple of years, uh, geopolitics uh, intervened and suddenly Damascus and Nabataea came under the control of the same king. As a result, Damascus was no longer a friendly sanctuary and Paul's enemies to the south could now reach him. Uh, and and uh, that wasn't too hard. All they had to do was bribe some officials. And we think that's likely what happened. What we do know is that the governor of Damascus suddenly set a guard on Paul to prevent him from leaving Damascus so that the people from the south could come arrest him. But Paul outsmarted him, escaping Damascus, as you can see in this picture in the stained glass window, by famously having his friends lower him from the city walls in a basket. Now, that all happened, we know, uh, in the year 36, because of some data that's given when they tell the story about who was king, and, uh, and it could only have happened in the year 36. So many folks would see their lives uh, were in danger and at this time, and they would quit. And they recognized that everywhere they might go was too dangerous to survive long, but not Paul. It wasn't too dangerous for Paul. He refused to stop preaching the gospel. And so after he escaped from Damascus, he traveled south to Jerusalem. Now imagine that. This was Paul, known throughout Jerusalem as Saul. This was the one who was the leader of the death squads just two years ago who had been exterminating Jesus' followers all over, uh, all over Judea. And Paul, this Paul, went to Jerusalem. Barnabas Barnabas escorted him, and Barnabas testified for him, uh, talked about his new preaching and, and how he had behaved up in, in Antioch in Damascus. Amazingly, Paul was accepted by Peter and accepted by Jesus' brother James, and he stayed with them for a period of about two weeks, and he moved freely among the disciples and actually got into debates down in the temple, uh, which was a step too far. He, uh, he had a price on his head, and so he was discovered down there in Jerusalem. And so his old Jewish buddies started hunting him, and Peter and James helped him to escape once again, this time sending him way far to the north to the area that you and I now call Turkey, uh, his hometown. They sent him home, basically, to Tarsus. Well, not long after they sent Paul home to Tarsus, he discovered a second way to irritate the Jews. And this was a discovery that changed the world. That's the principal thing I want to share with you this morning. But let me give you the bottom line first so you don't lose it because I'm going to be unpacking it. Uh, sometime not long after 36, just three years after Jesus was crucified, Paul began teaching that not just the Jews, but the pagans also could become followers of Jesus and thereby become heirs to the promises that God made to Abraham. So that's his new discovery. Now let's unpack it a bit and think about how that changes our world. Now, before we get into that, I need to pause and have us remember something that's crucial to our story, and that is the Abrahamic covenant. That's the that's the in the background of all this that we're going to be talking about today. Now, you remember Abraham, of course. God promised Noah that never again would God respond to humanity's rebellion by flooding the world. So he called Abraham and he showed Abraham the promised land and he made a covenant with him. 
Abraham would be the father of God's people whose mission was to live in such a way that all the world would learn to live in fellowship with God and teach in each other uh, through the way that Abraham's people live. So God would bless the Abrahamic people so that they might be in turn a blessing to the whole world. And God's promise was that I would bless you uh, and I'll bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse and all the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. So to be Abraham's family is to be God's people. To be a part of God's people is to inherit the promises made to Abraham. It's to, to, be, a part of, to be a part of God's people is to be a part of Abraham's family. That's the Jewish understanding. So I just ask you to hold on to that in your head as we proceed. That's essential background to understanding what Paul recognized God does through Jesus the Messiah. So, not long after moving to Tarsus, Paul went south from there, went back down from Turkey to Syrian Antioch, which was the third largest city in the Roman world. And there, Paul found, as I said, a new way to irritate the Jews that he met. Now, to understand what happened, I need to introduce a group to you that I've not spoken about a lot. Uh, we've mentioned them but uh, not really unpacked who they were and why they were significant. I'm talking about the God-fearers. They play a pivotal role in our story. Great cities like ancient Antioch were a hive of hospitality. Think of life before cable, indeed before TV and other mass media. The cultural ethos expected people to entertain one another. Banquets were common, whether given for networking, for political or commercial reasons, or just for entertainment. That was their form of entertainment, eating together. But Jews in those cities were visibly different. They stood out because they were less free to socialize and wouldn't often socialize with non-Jews. You see, Torah taught them to avoid images of gods, which were plentiful in the homes of their neighbors and in public establishments. They, and also they consumed meat and wine only if they were prepared in a ritually pure way, per Leviticus, the way that we today call kosher. Torah taught them also that sex wasn't something to be done in public with anybody you wanted, but rather was a blessing only uh, to be received within a marital context. And they ought not to marry folks who were not part of their Jewish community. Torah also taught them to organize their weeks differently than their neighbors to rest on the seventh day, to observe um, festivals, you know, ancient Jewish agricultural festivals like Passover and the Feast of the Tabernacles that were on different times as the festivals that their neighbors observed. So it was difficult for Jews to socialize with their pagan neighbors for a whole bunch of reasons, but not least because they were resting when the pagans were working and working when the pagans were partying. And when they were able to get together, the Jews were restrained because they avoided images of gods and they had all these food restrictions. However, some ancient pagans were much easier to befriend. I want you to imagine, you know, sort of a Romeo and Juliet type story, you know, that pagan boy who pursues the beautiful Jewish girl and, and changes his life completely in order to spend time with her. So, as I said, there were there were um, lots of pagans who made changes in order to socialize with their Jewish neighbors. 
they were able to interact with Jews because they cleansed their homes of pagan images and they adopted Jewish culinary practices so that their food was indeed acceptable to their Jewish friends. And they prayed to Yahweh. They gave alms to support their neighbors, whoever they were, and they actually rested as the Jews did on the seventh day. And they financially supported Jewish communal structures. Now, in scripture, this group is called the God-fearers, and they were all over major cities. And Jews were quite comfortable eating and socializing with God-fearers. And, and one of these you would know well, probably, Cornelius. He's the most famous God-fearer because his story is recounted in depth in, in the Acts of the Apostles. Well, now, long before Jesus died, the Jews in Antioch had begun to gather weekly in uh, their homes for meals, uh, for prayers, to teach and learn Torah, and to worship with the same liturgy that they would, would have done at a synagogue. The early Jesus followers in Antioch adapted these practices. Um, the meal uh, that, that the Jews would practice evolved into what you and I know as the Lord's Supper. Uh, they broke bread beforehand, and they shared it after remembering Jesus's words about the bread at the Last Supper. They drank wine at the end of the meal, and they passed the cup around uh, the group ritually. And then they had their entertainment, which consisted of worship that you and I would describe as charismatic or Pentecostal worship today. There was quaking and, you know, and, and the activity, you know, actions that showed that they were filled with the Spirit. At, at Corinth, they sang, they spoke in tongues, prophesied, and prayed for miracles, healings, and deliverances. And some of them had these ecstatic spiritual experiences that you and I uh, would equate today with charismatics. Now, that was all already happening when Paul arrived in Antioch to preach and teach the gospel at those house gatherings of Jews who were part of the Jewish movement. Now, the interesting thing is that God-fearers seem to have been present for a meal hosted by an early Jesus follower. And after sharing the cup, they worshiped, and the Spirit, as before, was powerfully present. But that day... It wasn't just the Jews who were touched by the Holy Spirit, who were animated and quaking as the Spirit rested upon them. The Spirit animated the God-fearers, too, and that's what Paul saw. Paul saw and grasped the significance of what he saw. The Holy Spirit was indwelling not just the Jewish followers of Jesus, but also the non-Jewish followers of Jesus. That wasn't supposed to happen. It wasn't supposed to be possible. We don't know exactly what day that happened, but it was a pivotal day in human history. For Paul recognized that God was doing something new. By seeing the Spirit indwelling the non-Jewish followers of Jesus, Paul realized that God was saying they would inherit the age to come too, the, the promises made to Abraham. And the startling thing was that they would do so without embracing Jew, Jewish practices first, like circumcision. How could God accept pagans without making them Jews first? It was shocking. It was mysterious. But Paul saw that it was clearly part of God's plan. 
And the result was Paul's extraordinary and revolutionary account of what God did and does on our behalf in Jesus. It's what he's re referring to in what Judy read to us today uh, from his letter to the church at Philippi. It's the generative principle of the church. So we had better take time to understand it. And it's about that time when Luke tells us the Romans gave the Jesus followers a new name, and their practices began to evolve to include pagans in their fellowship. Now, in, in, Luke, in Luke's writings, The Acts of the Apostles, he, Luke tells us that the Jesus followers were, fir were first called Christians at Antioch. It's a Latin name given to them by the Romans. It means members of the household of Christ. But the Romans didn't mean it as a compliment. No, they intended to mock. You see, the word Christos sounds like Christos, which was a common name given to a slave. So it was a put down within the ancient world's honor, shame, ethos. Instead of saying the people in the new movement were respectable by connecting to them with to some honored patron or some honored teacher, the nickname suggested instead that they were part of a shameful slave's household. But the interesting thing is why they needed a new name. You see, you only need a new name if there's something about you that has radically changed, such that you stand out from the people who, who uh, warranted the old name. So the fact that they were given a new name, Christianos, tells us that something happened in Antioch so that not all of the Jesus, Jesus followers looked and acted like Jews anymore. They looked different, and so they needed a new name. Why? Well, the answer is they needed a new name because they now lived in a way that distinguished them from ordinary Jews. The word ethos denotes how one lives one's life. Everyone has a way of life known as an ethos. Aristotle taught us that the question isn't whether you have a way of life, an ethos, since everybody does. The question instead is whether or not your way of life is a good one. And the name for a good way of life, a good ethos, is ethics. Ethics denotes the way of life that leads to the good. Well, Jews understood that their way of life, their ethos, which was grounded in Torah, was the ultimate ethics. If you converted to Judaism, you had to adopt their ethics, which was derived from Torah. And as I mentioned earlier, that meant that men should be circumcised, uh, that you avoid idols and images of the gods, that you eat kosher, and you reserve sex for faithful marriage, and you study Torah with your friends. The problem Paul recognized at Antioch is that the Spirit's indwelling of God-fearers meant that God seemed to be saying that, that the Jewish ethos is not the only ethos pleasing to God. For God accepted God-fearers into the new age who didn't practice Jewish ethics. And Paul explains how a Christian ethos is grounded differently than a Jewish ethos based on Torah observance and several of his letters. But we find his richest treatment in the epistle to the Romans. 
chapter six, where he unpacks the meaning of our baptism and also the transition that you and I undergo from pagan life to the way of following Jesus. And so he describes a baptism. You know, in those days, uh, in, in the first several centuries, new converts stripped off their clothes before step, stepping into a uterus-shaped tub the size of a jacuzzi. They were immersed as words were spoken, they arose, and afterward, they were given a new set of clothes that the community provided them. Um, the new clothes were an important marker of their new identity. And Paul talks about this gift of a new identity in terms of death and resurrection in Jesus, our participation in his death, his resurrection. We die and are buried with Jesus as we immerse ourselves below the water. And when we arise, we arise with a new identity. We ourselves become a new creation, Paul says. And that symbolic new creation is not merely a metaphor, it's real. We have new life. We are alive to God in the Messiah, Jesus. Now, that new creation happens through the work of the Spirit. Now, a lot of uh, folks, when I talk to them, uh, Christians will, will say, well, the, the, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit is something that the, the Christians have. The Jews don't have the Holy Spirit. Completely incorrect. The, the Holy Spirit is not known only to Christians. Throughout Scripture, the Spirit is always the means through which God's Word is expressed within the finite created order. And so we see in Genesis chapter 2, uh, the story of the creation of humans. Uh, God created the first human out of dust by blowing the spirit, by blowing the spirit, which is translated in, 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 in uh, Genesis 2-7 uh, as life's breath. You know, he blew life's breath into his nostrils and the human came to life. So the spirit is God's breath through which God gives life. And so Paul says it's through that same spirit that God makes alive the dead and calls that which is not into existence and creates this new creation. And he reasons that this spirit gives new Jesus followers a new mentality, a new mind, a resurrected mind. He says in Romans, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And so the mind of the spirit is life and peace, and it displaces the corruption and the conflict of our old minds. And so, given their new resurrected minds, new converts participate in the new eon, the new age that Christ had inaugurated. Everything old passes away, new things arrive. There is new creation, as we read, in, as, as, as uh, Charlie read to us in the, in the text to the church at uh, um, Galatia. Now, by the way, when Paul talks about new creation, he doesn't actually use expressions that we hear commonly today, like born again or rebirth, but he uses conceptually similar expressions, new creation and new human being. And a Christianos is a new creation. Those, all, those words all go together for Paul. Anyway, all of this leads Paul to what is rightly known uh, as Paul's Magna Carta. 
all who have been, we find that in his letter to the church at Galatia, chapter 3, verse 26 through 28. You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor, nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, all who have been immersed and reclothed in Christ are something new. They have a new identity. As a result of Jesus's faithfulness, they have become sons of God like him. They're no longer characterized by their ethnicity, their social status, or their gender. They are a new creation. There's something new that transcends those categories, the, the categories of race, class, and biology. And folks, this new identity changes everything for Paul. It certainly changes our ethics. It's the new, it, it's what changes the ethics of, the, of those first Christianos. It changes our understanding of the way of life that leads to the good. Our old ethics, the path to the good marked by Jewish ethical practices like circumcision and avoiding non-kosher foods is not the only way forward, and it's not the way forward for pagans at all. Adopting Jewish ways are not essential to the fullness of our fellowship with God and each other. What a radical idea. And Paul says this very crisply in his, church, his letter to the church of Galatia. Being circumcised or not being circumcised doesn't mean anything. What matters is new creation. And that helps us to understand why pagan converts to the Jesus movement didn't need to take up the Jewish ethic. Those practices were grounded in the structures of the present age. You know, the Jewish ethic was grounded in, you know, food, drink, clothing, land, marriage, etc. Those practices are their witness to the present age arising from their role in the Abrahamic covenant. Those practices remain holy. They remain important. But God's indwelling of the spirit in non-Jews means God opened up a new, different path for pagans. And that different path is being a Jesus follower. Converts to Jesus have died and been resurrected into a new age altogether. They're not living in the same era as the Jews. Paul says, they're not living within Judaism, but rather living in the fulfillment of Judaism. They don't live in the present age, but the age to come, in which all those old structures and practices of our culture no longer matter. Here's how one of my teachers taught me. He said, why take three months riding across the USA in a horse and buggy when you can board a jet and be there in five hours while enjoying a decent meal in the latest movies? Why attach leeches to a child's leg in the hope she can be cured by cancer when a program of radiation treatment has a 100% success rate for her particular cancer? That's how Paul viewed it. That's how he described it when he talked about putting off the old things and putting on the new. So Paul's discovery of God's action through Jesus to open up the Abrahamic covenant to pagans like you and me had two huge implications. And the first of these is that, well, if Paul acted in accordance with that revelation by evangelizing pagans, which he did, well, he would inevitably generate enemies who would persecute, persecute him just like Paul persecuted the first Jesus followers. 
Now, why is that? We know that's what happened. So to explain why he generated enemies with this, I want to turn to a contemporary analogy uh, involving our fellow Asian Americans. And to get at that, I want to have, have us remember uh, the 14th Amendment of our Constitution, which, you know, which says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction are citizens. So whether you're born or naturalized, uh, you're citizens. And then, then, it, then the 14th Amendment gets into, you know, due process and you're not, you know, the, the laws can never deny them, uh, you know, the fruits of that citizenship. And of course, the 15th Amendment uh, is the one that gives us, um, it, it says that the right of citizens to vote won't be denied on the basis of race, color, or the, their previous condition of servitude. Now, you and I, you know, grew up thinking about this, these amendments as the, as the, the Civil War amendments. And I want to bring us back uh, to the debate over the 14th and 15th Amendments and think about how our, our leaders reflected on the reality that there were Asian Americans already, particularly out on the West Coast, but, but, but already moving into uh, the regions of the Mississippi Delta. During an 1870 Senate debate on a bill enabling Congress to enforce the 14th Amendment, uh, Senator Charles Sumner proposed adding to that bill a proviso that would rid all U.S. naturalization laws of any and all racial requirements. And this is what he proposed that all acts of Congress relating to naturalization be, and the same or hereby, amended by striking out the word white wherever it occurs, so that in naturalization, there shall be no distinction of color and race. So that was the proposed law. In other words, Sumner wanted to eliminate white as a requirement for citizenship and protections under the 14th Amendment and for the right to vote under the 15th Amendment. But folks, would you believe this? That proviso, which I hope sounds real reasonable to you and me today, failed in our United States Senate because of opposition to Chinese naturalization and its possibility for giving Chinese immigrants the right to vote. Now, remind you, remember, the nation had just ratified the 14th Amendment 18 months prior to this. For many senators, Sumner's proviso was a bridge too far. For most Americans then and perhaps now, the Civil War amendments were about empowering African-Americans, not Asian-Americans, African-Americans who had languished under slavery. But the Sumner proviso took the implications of the 14th Amendment and went far beyond that. It sought to remove race entirely from our cultural grammar. And that we Americans are still not ready to do. Now, for our purposes, it's interesting to notice the rationale that was given during the debates. At a key point in the debate, a Nevada senator stood up and argued that citizenship and the right to vote belonged as an act of justice to African-Americans, a rationale which could not and ought not be extended to the Chinese. He said the Negro was among us. This was his native land. He was born here. He had a right to protection here. He had a right to the ballot here. He was an American and a Christian. And then he went on to say that he was a friend of many Chinamen, and he discovered that they were useful and industrious and genius and willing to perform any kind of labor. But 
they were undeserving of citizenship as the African-Americans were deserving. The former enslaved were Americans and Christians, whereas the Chinese were pagans in religion. Now, most of us are familiar with how American industrialists exploited Chinese labor to build the Transcontinental Railroad. But did you know that the Chinese were brutally oppressed during the same time we're talking about, during Reconstruction and and during all those decades that ultimately gave birth to Jim Crow laws? They were part of the conversation. That doesn't get uh, mentioned much when we think about it. There were horrific massacres of the Chinese and there were widespread violence against them. Then in 1882, uh, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which strengthened and made permanent uh, 10 years later uh, and and wasn't repealed until 61 years later in the middle of World War II when we needed the Chinese as our allies. The Chinese Exclusion Act prohibited the immigration of Chinese laborers and it, and, it was, and it gave a penalty of imprisonment and deportation. And it and the, the more challenging thing to me was that if you were a China Chinese person living here already, um, you became the first and only nationality whose immigrants were excluded forever from U.S. citizenship by law. This is at the same time that the 14th and 15th Amendment was passed. They were, they were given, Chinese were given a permanent alien status, and the law made it almost impossible for them to reunite with their families or to start new families here in the United States. In 1892, um, they renewed that law and they added something that I find abhorrent. They added a a requirement that all Chinese residents in the United States carry with them these certificates of residence that the IRS issued. And if they were caught not carrying those certificates, they were sentenced to hard labor and deportation. And bail was only an option if they were vouched for by a, quote, credible white witness. The 1924 Immigration Act extended all of this to all other Asian countries. And until these restrictions were relaxed in 1943, Chinese immigrants were forced to live a life apart and to build a society in which they could survive on their own. And so they built their own stores, restaurants, laundries, and schools, et cetera. And that's how we got Chinatowns all across the United States. Now, most of our legal discrimination of that kind has been repealed. But that habit of thinking in terms of a demonic and false white-black binary remains embedded in our culture. If you are Asian American, like my children are, like my wife is, like my brothers and sisters are, those who easily fit into that binary often don't know what to do with you. You're neither white nor black, and no one knows how to speak truth about your identity, even you, because our language fails us. All we seemingly have is a binary white-black grammar. So if you're a young Indian or Chinese or Vietnamese or Korean or some other Asian American, what's your identity? Are you almost white, almost black? Where do you fit into a society that can only think in a binary way? Do you sometimes discover that you encroached on 
white cultural territory and, and, and get pushed back? Do you discover that blacks sometimes see you as a threat to their efforts to realize the American dream? Where do you fit? Well, when we reflect on the lived experience of Asian Americans today, I think we might be able to understand why Paul's gospel generated such um, violent enemies who wanted him dead and ultimately got him dead. Consider the African-Americans who opposed extending citizenship rights to the Chinese immigrants in 1870, um, who thought it was their due, or, or who today oppose including Asian Americans in their vision for reparations payments. And, and their argument has been, we suffered all those years. We deserve every ounce of dignity and justice we've received. How dare Asian Americans who were not enslaved like we were, received the same status as us. Paul generated fierce enemies because he blew up our binaries. Paul's gospel proclaims that God acted through Jesus the Messiah to incorporate pagans into the family of Abraham. Pagans who had never been enslaved in Egypt, never been exiled in Babylon, never been oppressed by the Greeks or the Romans. And certain Jews said, we deserve our status as God's people because of our blood and because we have bled. The pagans don't. And if they want to share our identity as God's people, they have to become like us more like us. They must adopt our ethos, adopt our way of life, including circumcision, kosher food, refraining from idols, and keeping sex a gift within marriage only. And Paul's gospel turned that all upside down, for he said that God had acted to blow up our binaries. In terms of membership in God's people, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither enslaved person nor free, and no more male and female, no more white and black. Binaries are bull, Paul said. We are all one in Christ Jesus. No wonder some Jews were outraged. No wonder they worked so hard to deny the truth that God was teaching them. Now, the second impl implication of Paul's discovery is extraordinary good news for you and me. God's creation is good, and we are blessed by all the created things that lead us to fellowship with God. But within this created order, you and I, with resurrected minds, live in two worlds at the same time. We still live in what Paul calls the flesh, that world of our raging carnal desires. We, we see that world, we touch it, we hear it, we smell it and taste it. We still live amongst those powers that we spoke about a few weeks ago, those powers who tempt us to live as though we are all self-created, self-sufficient and self-authenticated. We still live in the present age. Yet through the spirit, we also live in the dawn of the age to come, the kingdom that Christ inaugurated, the spirit world through which God is transforming our minds. The spirit gave us eyes to see 
a glimpse of the new Jerusalem that is on its way and, and teaches us to live as people preparing for that future. And in this age to come that has dawned, God has, God has completely blown up our binaries. There is no white, black. There is no rich, poor. There is no male and female. There is only new creation. All is being made new. And as new creations, our resurrected mind of the spirit can coexist with those jarring sounds of the present age. I'm thinking of acid rock music right now. You know, we no longer need to march to the beat of the present age. We now have ears to hear beyond the cadence of the exploitive binaries of the present age. And we can hear arising in the air the exquisite harmony that is the unity of our diversity the chords of fellowship with God and each other. We hear them both simultaneously. We hear the cacophony of the present age and the symphony of the age to come. But as we walk along the way of love, the cacophony recedes and the symphony prevails. My prayer is that each of you will indeed hear that symphony that Paul heard arising on the air and receive the peace and joy your hearts desire. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. To honor all copyright restrictions, we may have removed some audio elements from this message.